0: Somebody told me that uh, Steve uh, gave a word of the day for his sermon a couple of weeks ago, and and tied money into it. Uh, you know, I thought mercy's a good word for the day, and maybe we could go from one dollar to ten dollars. <laughs> except it's ten dollars in labor, paying your parents back for all the mercy that they've shown you and taking care of you for all of these years. You know, just. Uh, With that being said, uh, would you take your Bibles, uh, whether you have them on your phone, your tablet, uh, and paper, turn to Luke chapter 10, and let's stand as uh, we read this passage from God's Word. This section of Luke just before has the transfiguration. It's the time when Jesus was beginning to tell his disciples about his coming death. Is sending them out and telling them not to be excited about the powers that they had, but what it meant that their names, by God's mercy, were in God's book. And in the midst of that, in 1025, Luke's Gospel, we hear this, And behold, a lawyer, that's a church lawyer, a scribe, a scholar of the Torah of God's law, stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the scribe, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, said, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers." The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father open your book open our hearts clarify our fuzzy thoughts remove our wrong thoughts show us more of what you are like and of your call on our lives and most of all in that of your mercy and your grace and your power we pray in Jesus name amen be seated, please. I have been uh, encouraged over the last several years reading some of James K. Smith's books. Uh, Stephen Crafton and I have talked about that, uh, Steve. Uh, Muller as well. I'm not encouraging you to read more books. I get some of you saying that's so exciting and others I can't keep up and I don't expect that, uh, you, know, that you will. But uh, Smith has written with insight on how we, more than we know, live and learn by liturgy. And you go, what? That the real way we live and reinforce what's going on in life uh, is by the patterns and the rhythms, visual emotional, spatial, that take place in our lives, and a lot of those take place on screens now, and we could spend a whole long time on that. I'm not going to say much more than that, but those things, the visual, the sounds, the settings, the words, that they shape our desires and our affections. And uh, The best of the Puritan pastors, and I hope that you've come to the place. If not, please talk to me and ask for help, where the word Puritan is a good word for you. Our cultures tried to make it a bad word. Uh, The Puritan pastors at their best had some of the greatest insights into the Christian life uh, in hundreds of years. And one of the things that the best of them saw so well is that uh, uh, our souls are steered most by our affections. If you look at us as having intellects or minds and, and wills, and affections. It's not the only way to talk about human beings, but it's a legitimate way. Uh, So often in our tradition, uh, we're really big on the intellect, on sound doctrine and sound mind, and Paul's big on doctrine. Peter's big on doctrine. It's important. Uh, And in a lot of traditions, maybe some of the churches you grew up in, people are always calling for recommitment, rededication, applying the will to follow Christ, I'm not in favor of that in the way it's done often but it's an important thing to have our wills doing the right thing. But what the puritans understood is that with those three things the affections, the desires of the heart are like the rudder on a ship. Doesn't no matter how good your doctrine is, doesn't matter how many new years christian resolutions you make your life will, steer, will be steered by the rudder of the affections of your heart. And a lot of our liturgies, sometimes we say, I don't like liturgy in church. We don't talk about it a lot, but we have a liturgy that reminds us of who God is, of our need to bow before Him and confess our sins, of our need for the renewal of knowing forgiveness. But there are a lot of other liturgies out there And I think in many ways uh, there's proof in the pudding of life in America in the 21st century that people are being discipled by the liturgies of the world, even church folks, and kids growing up in church more than by what is in the church. Billions are spent every year in advertising to guide your desires. Multiplied millions are spent on temples like malls and stadiums and universities with glorious buildings and ever more glorious athletic facilities for the students that are better than what the athletes used to have because we've got to have the best temples uh, to give the best experience. Now, there's good in a lot of that, but those things that influence and shape our thoughts and affections, we really need to discern them Augustine noted that humans are desiring agents, full of longings and passions. In brief, we are what we love. And we move towards the sets of relationships that remind us of, because we know we need to be reminded to stir the affections for the things we love. I've been watching a little bit of the ramp up. I got a haircut yesterday and uh, was it Sports Clips and, you know, they had the, one of the first uh, NFL pregames on. And, uh, you know, what went through my mind, images of the Dallas Cowboys' incredible stadium and now the one they build in L.A. that, that tops it. Temples of temples and, and the musics and the themes and everything that ramp us up to get excited to the place that, uh, especially those who bet money, uh, cry and weep more than Christians do at appropriate moments. Uh, when they lose their funds. Our PCA stated clerk, uh, Brian Chappell, uh, and I couldn't find the exact document, so I may be slightly off on the exact uh, figures, but he said the best we can tell in the PCA that uh, our churches during uh, the COVID season were about like most churches in America. There was a drop afterwards uh, of 20 to 40% in attendance. And there's a certain chunk of that that have found new rhythms, new liturgies to life and aren't coming back. Now, why do I go all all out into this? I'm not going to beat up on you, you're here. But I want us to to pray and think, uh, are we thinking about why do I need the liturgy that's in worship? Do I understand that, how many other places do you go that teach you about the whole Christ and have you humble yourselves before Him, that teach you regularly about the weakness of your own nature, that teach you both about the beauty of creation and the glory of the university. We've got a wonderful one near us here that has a lot of things, and yet the university, the universities in America are the seedbed of Romans 1 in running away from God and God letting us run by our own desires. And their temples and their buildings are telling a whole different narrative and liturgy of what human beings are and what we can and should do to our bodies and with them. We need one another desperately. And so this morning I want to give you one more glimpse of why you need Christ and his church as the foundational liturgy in your life just by looking at Jesus and the way that he used this parable we need to be a people who see the beauty and the flourishing Jesus brings and who know what lesser beauties are pulling us away from devotion to Him. Luke ten, twenty-five, uh, verses 25 to 29. Uh, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Uh, it's natural to want to test Jesus. That's the first heading. Natural in quotes because that's what the flesh wants to do. I mean... Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are or where the people in the crowds were in Jesus' day. Uh, He shakes up everybody because he is so different than us. He's like us. He's God eternal who took on flesh, but he's God eternal who took on flesh. And so he shakes us up. And so this teacher of the law who considers himself, no doubt, one of the scholars of Scripture in Israel... Uh, doesn't like some of the things that he's hearing, and so he wants to test Jesus. And, and one of the reasons uh, for that is what comes uh, before that he threatens our attempt, every attempt to take control. Uh, if you've got your Bible open, look back at ten, chapter ten, and verse twenty-two. Uh, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Uh, if you try to share your joy in Christ with very many people today, uh, you're going to say, wait a minute, that's too narrow, that's too exclusive, that's too intolerant. And, and you may have even heard uh, the thing I think I shared in another sermon, the story of uh, Uh, of the elephant in the blind village and everybody's going around the elephant and trying to some are grabbing the trunk and some the legs and some the tail and the elephant bends down and they get hit with an ear and they're all trying to figure out what it is Uh, but they're all blind and and can't figure it out and that's like world religions everybody's got a little understanding of what God is really like and uh, and therefore we should just believe anything goes Uh, you know what the problem with that story is? is there's a hidden narrator that is almost never talked about who's the one that's telling you the story. And the question that doesn't get asked when people throw it in your face is how this narrator find out what the truth really is and that none of us have it. That's intolerant of him. That's narrow-minded. How dare he be what he's accusing us to be or she? I want to be fair to men and women both on that. Well, the issue with Jesus, and I can't say much more than this, is that he's claimed, even in the previous verses to this text, that he came from eternity, and he's the only one who really knows what it's all about, and we are the ones who are blind that need somebody to tell us. So one of the reasons to look at Jesus, and if you've got questions, I could give you a lot more reasons. I mean, I spent a year and a half of my early college years growing up in the church but not being sure of where I came from and who I was, uh, finally coming to the conclusion after looking at a bunch of other things that if one wanted to be reasonable, Jesus is the first place to look if anybody really knows what it's all about. And that's a very rational, logical reality. He proclaims he was eternal to the Father. But he speaks most specifically to this Jewish lawyer. And, you know, a typical tactic, listen to this because you do it, I do it. If we're struggling with God and we're struggling with really listening to the Scripture, uh, a typical tactic is to argue about rules or about morality to avoid God as personal, as a being who's so much greater than us. Because if I can just deal with concepts, if I can just deal with rules, then I can avoid really dealing with God. Religion is a great place to hide from God. Because you can pretend that you're dealing with Him uh, because you're so religious, like this scribe in the story. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four What is God? Answer God is a spirit, infinite, eternal. Unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What is the law? Scriptural law. uh, One of the roots I'm told of Torah, the Hebrew word, uh, is instruction in the sense that the word could sometimes be used like someone pointing, in the sense of showing you the way. Where, Where do you need to go? You go here. How do you need to go? You go this way and. And that way. And so instead of thinking of impersonal rules, think of the creator of the universe who, in his word, is explaining what life is about and say, this is the way to go, walk in it. And we see in, as we unfold this, and if you were listening closely, you've already seen it, uh, that uh, the scribe, the lawyer, knew the law, but he was trying to not have it nail him down too tightly. And a long-standing dodge to escape judgment and justice with God is is we want to narrow the reality of God's instructions. Every good uh, courtroom TV show uh, does this one time or another. Something comes out and one of the lawyers uh, changes the angle on it and makes it smaller than it is so that something that seemed really big seems to go away. And that's what's going on in this text. Uh, The lawyer gives the best text for Jesus Uh, for answering his question about, uh, how do I get to eternal life? Loving God with all heart, soul, mind, strength, and and our neighbors. But he's kind of figuring out as he's testing Jesus that Jesus is not buying him totally. And uh, so, uh, you know, he gets uh, the next question to Jesus, and who is my neighbor when Jesus tells him that's the right thing to do? Now, that's an important thing in this text. Among many of the Jews, and especially among many of the Pharisees who could include the scribal lawyers, the rabbis, the Levites, uh, neighbor was defined very narrowly in those circles. It was a fellow Jew. It was a fellow righteous Jew like themselves, distinguishing themselves from the common people who were often called by the religious elite, uh, just the people of the land. And people outside the nation of Israel were really outside the neighborhood of friends and neighbors. They were outside the neighborhood. And some of the furthest outsiders were the Samaritans. Uh, you may know this, make it quick. Uh, Samaria is just north of Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, the Samaritans. Think of Jesus at, with the woman at the well of Sychar, uh, and she talks about the fact that we worship at our temple, the Jews worship in Jerusalem. When the Jewish people were carried off into exile, first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom, some Jewish folks remained in the land. And over time, many of them intermarried against Scripture with non-Jews, and they became technically half-breeds, and that's what the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day called them they had their own temple on mount gerizim and after the exile was over and the temple was being rebuilt some of these half-breeds who didn't like being called half-breeds after all they're the ones that had been in the land for a long long time guess what they did they had their temple upon mount gerizim and when the temple was being rebuilt in jerusalem the one that was there during jesus times they brought dead pigs and threw them on the building site at night Now, that may not mean much to you, but what it meant was the Levites and the priest had to stop construction and go through several weeks of reconsecrating and making clean the temple site. And that's why there was such tension and bad blood, can we put it literally, between these two groups. It helps to know all that, to understand that this parable isn't just some nice, simple story with no zing. In it, point two. Jesus answers often our abstract arguings with three-dimensional characters. Verses thirty through thirty-two start. Uh, he replies, "A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's like I meant to look it up. Uh, Twenty-five hundred to three thousand foot drop from Jerusalem to Jericho down winding roads. I've walked on it. Some places, if you're walking on the other side of the road, you're either up against the cliff wall this way or you're." Going next to the edge of the cliff. Uh, it was just pretty hard to get away from this guy a lot of places on that road. But there's this man that fell among robbers, stripped, beaten, depart, that left him half dead. And a priest was going down by the road and passed to the other side, and then the Levite. Jesus' parable here is, is a mirror to this scribe who's one of those guys, like the priest and the Levite. Uh, James 1:22 and through 25 uh, don't take the time to turn there we won't be there long but talks about seeing our natural face in the mirror versus the mirror of scripture interpreted by God's perfect law and gospel liberty changing us it's James way of talking about the flesh and the spirit and Jesus writing scripture with this parable is holding up a mirror in front of this Levite to show him he's not interpreting the Scripture that he knows so well properly at all. And he reverses the testing of the scribe, the Scripture lawyer, with a question. Uh, I love uh, Woody Allen's quips, uh, the film director uh, uh, who was some, one time asked, he's Jewish, uh, why do rabbis always answer questions with questions? And Allen said, Why shouldn't a rabbi answer questions with questions? It's a great line. But Jesus' question is at the end of a story. The story is a scriptural mirror held up before the scribe and any religious, sacred or secular religious. uh, In case you haven't noticed, we are now in the age of the secular religious. A lot of folks in our culture didn't want to be religious in the traditional ways, and so now they've become deeply religious, deep standards. Much like the characters uh, that are in the elites in this parable, uh, that's the way they are with their secular religion. So this applies well, whether you're church religious or secular religious. They treat outsiders, the unclean, the beneath us, who could at least temporarily stain us or besmirch our righteousness and our social standing. That's the issue here. If, if the rabbi... Uh, the priest or the Levite touched this body and the guy was dead, then he's got to do what the priest had to do when the pigs went in the temple construction site. He's got to spend days getting clean again because he touched a dead body that wasn't in his own family. And, and he's associated with this outsider down on the road. So this is a very complex thing that can have a lot of applications in our society uh, you know, our newfangled language is that we must cancel folks, disassociate them, uh, remove them, lest we be tainted by their unrighteousness as seen by our peers or the priests that we feel must we must bow before. Now, it's just the same behavior. Please understand me, I'm beating up on the church and I'm beating up on the world. So I don't think I'm saying we in the church are the ones who are good and have got it all together and all the stuff that's going on in the culture is all bad. No, I'm just trying to say, We human beings are all the same. We just do things in different contexts. But the patterns are so very similar. And it's not all about... uh, We could speak of righteous moralists or conservatives or progressives or social justice warriors or racists or callers of people racist. It's all about how we see ourselves and how we treat outsiders. Let me give you a a story that I need to tell quickly, but... uh, don't let the devil deceive you by narrowing the, def- narrowing the definition so you can feel good about your social position. That's the principle that's here. For several years, uh, about 10 after 2005, every couple of years I went and spent three weeks in East Africa uh, training pastors and elders in mostly uh, independent Pentecostal churches but with uh, some of the young Presbyterian churches as well, training the ruler the pastors and the elders, sending a number of guys uh, to seminary with friends who uh, helped me raise the money. And at the time of a couple of trips uh, to Kenya, uh, the government of Kenya was deeply divided. A troubled election uh, led to both a president and a premier uh, being appointed at the same time because the nation was so divided. And it was really a fun government. I mean, ours gets to be a mess too, doesn't it? But you had different agencies that were under the president and different agencies were under the premier, and everybody's trying to figure out who do they need to line up with, and they were all trying to line up the different tribes with their group and how the resources were being handled out so people would support them and vote for them and they could win uh, the next election. Uh, And to keep the peace, Uh, I and my colleague uh, were entering Kenya from Uganda and spent a couple of hours in a back room in the back of the West Kenya Customs Office. Uh, I don't recommend that. Uh, It's kind of like you don't know why they're not letting you enter even though you've got a visa from the Kenyan embassy in Washington, D.C., and uh, they're locking you up, uh, so to speak. Uh, I mean, they're there with you, but uh, uh, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with you. And uh, and we were trying to figure out uh, whether the issue was that they wanted some uh, extra fees to let us in Uh, If you know what I mean, uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Or whether we were caught up in this political mess because we knew and had heard that uh, uh, some parts of the government were really upset with both local people really preaching the gospel and with outsiders coming preaching the gospel because it was biblical values were influencing the election. Can you imagine that? And uh, all we knew is the way it ended up was that... uh, they decided to let us in the country without any extra money coming their way. But then they warned us because of their interrogation, we know where you're going to be, and if you preach, we'll arrest you. It was a new experience for me for literally firsthand in a foreign land getting uh, tested. Now, it was interesting because uh, one of our Pentecostal bishops uh, had been the district commissioner of police and made contact with the district commissioner, who's like the governor of this huge area of western Kenya. And, uh, and he said, I want to meet them. So we went into his office and he found out what had happened. And he found out how we were talking about economics and mercy and ministry uh, in, in the ministry of preaching the gospel. And he began to ask us questions and he says, what you guys are doing, we have so many poor in my district And maybe you can get through to them. You're trying to tell them some of the same things I'm trying to tell them. And he gets on the phone and calls the customs office and says, don't you ever treat these people that way again, even though it was a separate area of the government. Now, that was fascinating, but that's only the first part of the story. Here's why I take the time to to tell you the story. Is that between the previous trip into western Kenya and this trip, there had been... Riots, deaths, churches and buildings burned down. And as I and my colleague began to teach about the implications of the gospel and how we deal with insiders and outsiders and what the heart of mercy towards those that the world would call outsiders if we're going to be involved with our worldly, cultural, ethnic, economic, political party groups, that the gospel changes all that. And I found out that four, I think it was, of the pastors in this conference of 200 had had their buildings burned down. And they knew other pastors who loved Jesus, but who were involved in beating other pastors and Christians because of the lines that had gotten drawn over the way words were pronounced in the dialect or the tribal language. And I watched these dear brothers grasp how big the gospel is and begin to weep in front of my friend Barry and I, saying we just didn't understand that loving Jesus means this. Oh, we must go tell our people and teach our people. This is no small thing that Jesus is doing in this parable. And Jesus, 3, uses a Samaritan to shine light on the blindness that we religious elites have to our desperate need of the mercy of God. From the background already presented, you can see that Jesus' parable is like a lighted, magnifying makeup mirror to this lawyer. I mean, it's just in his face and helping him see the poors and the ones that are stopped up with ungodliness. Because it's this half-breed Samaritan that's the good guy, who sees in compassion, anoints, wraps, wounds, walks himself and lets his animal carry the half dead man and takes care of him. The outsider, the outcast, the canceled, the scorned Samaritan is the one who identifies with the wounded, the unclean, the closer to death than life man. And so now Rabbi Jesus questioned, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer knows he's trapped and says the one who showed him mercy. And he says, you go and do likewise. I don't think there's anything wrong with that admonition, is there? You go and do likewise. But lest you go off track, let me ask you this. Do you think that if you do one deed of mercy like that, that you're guaranteed eternal life? How about five? How about 105? Is that what Jesus is saying? I've heard the passage taught almost that way because we slip into moralism. The admonition is an admonition, but we've already said it in this worship so well, service and so well in some of the songs. It's on the other side of the gospel, that this kind of mercy works and leads us to eternal life because it comes from Chains Hearts. Item four. That was the shortest shortest point you've ever heard me preach. (laughs) Only mercy and law together can lead to eternal life. Look at how he tests the scribe. What is written with the law? How do you read it? Every word Jesus says is important. And when he says to the scribe who goes to the right passage, how do you read it? Uh, He's saying, are you sure you're reading it correctly? And the whole point of the parable is he wasn't reading it correctly because he was concerned about following rules and he was not concerned about a changed heart that knew that he was in desperate need of God's mercy. And so anybody else he ran into, whether they spoke the wrong tribal tongue or whether they were the one your social group wants you to cancel, if you belong to Jesus above all, the liturgy, the narrative of your life causes you to look At life differently. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, your neighbor as yourself. Uh, If eternal life, forgiveness, justification, righteousness is by the law, how are your chances of righteousness right standing leading you freely into the presence of God? Really bad. You're not going to get there by the law. You get there by the law leading you to mercy. And that's why our Westminster Confession, I'm into the applications, summarizes Scripture's teaching on the law, the instruction, the commands, that informs us of God's will and our duty. It discovers our sin and our pollutions. It gives us a clearer sight of the need we have of Christ and of the perfection of His obedience on our behalf so that we become like the Samaritan who identifies with those who need mercy. It's all about clinging to Jesus for mercy first. And just in case you think I missed the point of the parable, uh, Luke gives immediate applications. I can only touch on them in the couple minutes we got left. Luke 10:38. Now as they went on their way, it's the very next verse. Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomes him into the house. She had a sister called Mary. This is Lazarus' house. They sat at, Mar- Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to Jesus' teaching. But Martha is so distracted with much serving, and she goes up to Jesus and said, Jesus, won't you cancel Mary's behavior out because she's sitting down at your feet and she's left me to do the good deeds of service alone? And Martha, I mean, it's good what she's doing, but she thinks that it's what she's got to do to be righteous. And Jesus' words to Mary are just amazing. Martha, Martha, you're so anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. What did Mary choose? It's the old Sunday school lesson. Jesus Everything that we need is in Jesus. And and Mary's going to get up and do a lot of work. But she wants the words of mercy and life from the mouth of her Savior, who's in her house, eating can wait. I saw a church in Portland when I was in seminary. Uh, Had a wonderful evangelism explosion program. Small groups, life groups. They killed their life groups because all the homes started outdoing one another in the food that they served. And before long, it was about the food. You can eat later. I mean, I'm all for food. But it's about Jesus. And is he there? And, and and are you crying out for his mercy because you know you need it every day of your life? And finally, it's fascinating to me that Luke puts his recording of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, that it's longer in Matthew, and don't get confused by this kind of stuff. Can you imagine Jesus probably taught the disciples that prayer more than once? I need to hear it over and over again. But Luke shortens it. And he makes it about, Father, hallowed be your name. This is Luke 11, 1 through 4. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, our debts. We forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Luke is led by the Spirit to put this application next, hallowing the Father's name, longing for the kingdom and sustenance. But he says, because we are a people who know we need mercy and forgiveness, And what do we need forgiveness of? Don't forget what's in Matthew's rendering of the Lord's Prayer. My Methodist church didn't like the word debts in the Lord's Prayer. But it's really important to understand that what God has to forgive of you is your debts. What are your debts? You were to love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, every waking hour of your life, because that's what He's worthy of. And every minute you didn't do that, you owe Him. Do you think you need mercy? If God who is the Creator and who defines everything says, that's what I created you for, do you think you're in debt to the Lord of heaven? And the debt is so great you could never pay it back. And that once you see that mercy and that's where forgiveness flows and you look at anybody else and decide to be harsh with them, you've got to go back and relearn the gospel, brothers and sisters. And I want to get us out of here on time, but a 30-second aside, our culture of setting right now is teaching people to pick at one another online and tweets and whatever else you're onto out there. I've stopped most of it. And I see it creeping into the church. And when we're in a transition time, we're gonna pick at this, we're gonna pick at that. The search committee's not fast enough. Balderdash. <laughs> you know, I think they're getting close. I'm not gonna say any more than that. I mean I don't know what close means. It could be two months, it could be three, it could be longer before we have an you know God could surprise all of us. But the average is like 6 to 18 months in PCA churches. So, so I hope it happens real soon, but quit picking if you're one of the ones that pick. And i got to go home and apologize to my wife, because can you believe I would pick at my wife? Because i got to go back to mercy. And finally this. How does the Lord's Prayer end before even in Matthew with the praises? Lead us not into temptation. And deliver us from the evil one or the evil and it could be the evil one I think that's actually probably more accurate let me tie that to this sermon and then we're done what is the single greatest temptation that you need to pray not to be led into it's the temptation to lose sight of how desperate you are for mercy and God's covering your debts in Christ. More than anything else, the devil wants you to forget that. Because if you forget that, you will forget Jesus. And you will forget that you need him. And you will be smug that, oh, I know a little bit more about this about Jesus than you do. And I've been to seminary and to years of school after that, and I'm so smart. Well, If I'm not merciful, I'm so stupid, I'm so blind, I need somebody to take me by the hand and lead me back to the cross. So, brothers and sisters, this parable is a big parable because it's teaching all of us religious elitists, religious in religions or religious in the new secular religions we haven't faced the biggest reality of all. We're in debt to God and there's no way out but the Lord Jesus Christ whose arms want to hug you this morning and say, do you think I did what I did and I won't hug you? Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, let us see what you're like so that we see beauty in following you. Let us see what you're like and how you've treated us that we might see beauty in our neighbors. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.